from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Isaiah 41, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 629 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the people renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who has roused the victory from the east? Summon him to his service. He delivers up nations to him and tramples kings under his foot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues and passes on safely, scarcely touching the path with his feet. Who has performed and done this calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and will be, the, be with the last. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of, earth, of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Each one helps, helps the other. Each to, each to one another take courage. The artisan encouraged the goldsmith, and the one who smoothens with the hammer encouraged the one who strikes the anvil, saying the soldering, is it good, and fasten it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, who I'm chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you, who, you whom I took from the ends of earth and called from the f furthest corner, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you in my victorious right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes from 1 John chapter 4, verses 16 through 21, and that can be found on page 226 of the New Testament. Listen now for the word of the Lord. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not reached perfection in love. We love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God, and hate their brother or sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. This too is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people. 
than those who came into this sacred space this morning. Even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, we have indeed come to uh, the final week in our sermon series entitled Telling a Different Story. Uh, Over the past three Sundays, we have engaged some of the narratives that prevail in our culture and in our time. You are what you own. Image is everything. And there is not enough. In light of these prevailing stories, we've tried to tell a different story a story that roots our faith and our life together, a story called gospel, a story called good news, a story about what God has done in and for the world through Jesus the Christ. And so in this final week, we do it one more time by engaging another prevailing narrative of our age. You should be afraid. You should be afraid. As we get into it this morning, it might be helpful for us to first think about and acknowledge the benefits of fear, the benefits of fear. Several years ago, Katie and I joined her extended family in a hiking excursion to the top of Mount Washington, the most celebrated peak of the White Mountains in the beautiful state of New Hampshire. Katie's uncle, who is the designated risk taker in the family, I'm sure every family has a designated risk taker, was inquiring with uh, the guides as to how we could traverse a path, a trail called Tuckerman's Ravine. The pitch of that ravine is steep and its slope measures between 40 and 55 degrees. Mount Washington is the beneficiary of three converging weather patterns, which meant on that July 2nd day, it was 65 degrees at the base of the mountain, but only 6 degrees Fahrenheit at the top, with a wind gust measured at 35 miles per hour. As if this was not enough of a deterrent, positioned on the side wall of the visitor center was a list of names, and after every name, there was a specific date, dating all the way back to 1886. It listed everyone who died hiking or skiing Tuckerman's Ravine. I overheard Katie's uncle speaking with another park ranger as to the best route to get there, and I literally started to shake. Have you ever had this moment where you feel your own fear, where your heart starts pounding in your chest and you're keenly aware of your fear, of what it means to be afraid? Fortunately, I wasn't the only one in the family afraid. Other members of our family began to express their doubt as to whether or not it was a good idea to hike Tuckerman's ravine. Finally, our fears were relieved as a supervisor from the parks came in and announced that that particular trail was closed. The elements were just too dangerous. They were afraid that someone might get hurt. Here's a case where fear functioned in its proper God-designed way, right? God has, by by God's divine wisdom, endowed us with the capacity to be afraid. We have a, a, 
a keen sense of when danger is approaching, which motivates us to avoid certain people, certain situations, certain scenarios, certain experiences that might cause us harm. The writer of 1 John, I think, is, is spot on. Fear is related to punishment. Our fear instinct kicks in when we feel as if we're going to be punished, as we feel as if we're going to be harmed, we feel as if we are going to encounter a danger of some kind. In its purest sense, fear produces a sort of reverence, a sort of acceptance of something that we believe holds power over us. Something that we believe has the capacity and the ability to do us harm. Our fear instinct kicks in when that danger approaches. You know, there, there was a certain reverence and respect I had for Tuckerman's Ravine, of course for its natural beauty, but, but also for its treachery and for its power to have my name sketched on that wall. This is part of our design. This is how God made us. This God-given human faculty called fear motivates us to respect. It motivates us to revere that which we perceive to be powerful. The scriptures talk about not being afraid. We see that in both Testaments. The Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, we hear it from the words of the prophet. We hear it from Jesus himself. Do not be afraid. And yet there is another side to this story, isn't there? Because there is this encouragement to fear the Lord. The wisdom that comes from the writer of Proverbs says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is wisdom when one knows and lives as if God is God. There is wisdom when one lives life under the ultimate power of God. Make no mistake, God has the power to crush us. God has the power to punish us. God does have the power to cast us off. But God chooses another way. You know, theologically speaking, this ability to fear goes beyond just the sort of natural evolutionary uh, course of life uh, that fear helps promote our survival as a species. That's true. But theologically speaking, God has given fear to us almost as maybe a spiritual gift that allows us to revere God, to submit to God and God's ultimate power in the cosmos. The problem is that we live in an age where our natural capacity to fear, this God-given instinct to be afraid, is severely manipulated each and every day. Author Barry Glasner is spot on when he says ours is a culture of fear. Fear drives our politics. Fear drives our consumption. Fear drives our economics. Fear drives the way we practice faith. Fear drives the way we parent. Fear drives so many aspects of our lives. It's no wonder ours is an age of anxiety and stress and, and worry. It's no wonder that mental illness and addiction and violence are so prevalent in our age. 
It seems that everywhere we turn, someone or something is telling us to be afraid. You should be afraid. You should be afraid that you're not going to have enough money. You should be afraid that you're not wearing the right kinds of clothes. You should be afraid of not getting the proper education. You should be afraid of not getting into the right college. You should be afraid of not attaining the the right grades. You should be afraid of ending up alone. You should be afraid that you're going to fail. You should be afraid that you're going to be exposed as incompetent. You should be afraid of being insignificant in retirement. You should be afraid that the wrong person just might get elected president on Tuesday. You should be afraid that you might lose your job and not be able to provide for your family. You should be afraid that you're not a good grandparent or a good parent. You should be afraid of refugees and, and immigrants. You should be afraid of the racial or ethnic other. You should be afraid that the stock market's going to crash. You should be afraid because you're going to die. Our capacity to fear is manipulated in so many ways. And those fears dictate our behavior. They dictate the choices that we make. To that end, I want to share a more comical illustration that I hope makes the point. Before the early 1900s, Deodorant wasn't a thing. That is until a young woman from Cincinnati named Edna Murphy teamed up with a former Bible door-to-door salesman to market a product that she wanted to bring to consumers. Odorono is what she called it, combining three words, odor, o, no. Miss Murphy's father was a physician, and he developed a solution that he used pre-surgery that kept his hands dry throughout. She thought this would make a great beauty product, and so she, she got the recipe, she put it together, she bottled it, and in 1912, from Cincinnati, she headed east to Atlantic City during a sweltering summer to try to sell this product at one of Atlantic City's expositions. It was met with very little success. She sold virtually no product. Eventually she met James Young, this this marketer that I just referenced a moment ago. He had a strategy to promote her product. Here it is. Convince women that the reason they did not have a man was because they smelled bad. Convince them that they should be afraid of living life alone because they couldn't overcome their odor. Now, people of this time still possessed a Victorian sensibility. So talking about bodily fluids like sweat and and unmentionable conversations like B.O. was most certainly still a faux pas. It was a great risk to advertise this product in this particular way. But they did it anyway. And in 1919, get this, Mr. Young took out a full-page ad in Ladies' Home Journal. 
The message was delivered with precision and clarity. If you want to find a man and keep a man, don't smell. Part of the full page ad read, and I quote, a woman's arm, poets have sung of it, great artists have painted its beauty. It should be the daintiest, sweetest thing in the world, and yet, unfortunately, it isn't always. You can't make this stuff up. Odorono's scale, or or sales rather, skyrocketed, and the company made $1 million in 1927. And it was eventually sold to the makers of Q-Tix in 1929. I mean, think about this for just a second. The fear of loneliness and rejection was the genesis of the deodorant industry. I think most of us would agree that it's not a good idea to leave our homes without putting it on. But it was actually fear that motivated this culture-wide behavioral change. For sure, it is a bit of an absurd example, but nonetheless, it elevates the point. Someone or something else can manipulate and direct us by making us afraid. Right? Here's the operating logic. Fear motivates us toward action, and if you can dictate what people are afraid of, then you can dictate their behavior. If you can shape their fear, you will shape their lives. That may have been part of the Babylonians' plan. Most scholars believe that the book of Isaiah should be read in three volumes. The second volume, chapters 40 to 55, contains writings about God's promised hope of a homecoming. See, at the time of this writing, the people of God were exiled from their home by the Babylonians and were forced to to live in the land of their oppressor. And in our text from Isaiah 41, the prophet writes of a time in the near future when God will bring the people home, when God will make things right again and release them from their captivity. To be sure, there was much to be afraid of in this moment. The Babylonians, I am confident, made sure of that. There was the potential to fear that God had abandoned the people, that God had cut them off. There was the potential to fear that they would never return home. There was the potential to fear that the Babylonians would simply wipe their nation off of the planet. And to be sure, these fears, if realized, would lead to very specific action. They could have abandoned their faith. They could have turned to the Babylonian gods and worshiped them. They could have put their trust in the hands of their oppressor. The Babylonians, I think, in part, are trying to shape the fear of the people of God so that they choose defeat, so that they choose doubt, so they choose to turn away from the God who called them friend. It's in the face of these potential fears that the prophet speaks as God's mouthpiece. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. What the Lord speaks through the prophet is at once both obvious and subtle. Right? The obvious bit is that, that they shouldn't be afraid that God is God, that even in this captivity, that God will 
bring victory, that God will bring salvation, that God will bring a homecoming. The subtle bit is, I think, deeper in this text. It's, it's not just about not fearing the Babylonians. It's also about what it means to fear God, to trust that God is more powerful than any person or any situation or anything we face right now in our lives. That God is God above all else. The fear of the Lord, that fear motivates us for specific action. It motivates us to trust. It motivates us to put our confidence and our allegiance in the hand of this God. What we fear most certainly dictates our behavior. It most certainly dictates the trajectory of our lives. Isn't it so that we have come to fear so many things without fearing the right thing or fearing the right one? What would it mean for us to fear God? What would it mean for us to allow the course of our lives to be dictated by that fear, by that reverence, by that honoring, by that respect? If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then I think the end of wisdom is perfect love. If the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, then, then the end of wisdom is perfect love. First John says it this way, that perfect love casts out all fear. And I wonder if we can leave enough space to interpret this text in this way, that perfect love casts out all improper fear. It casts out all improper fear and creates space for us to fear the right one, to honor the right one, to revere the right one, the ultimate power and authority. This God has the power and authority to crush us, to punish us, and yet chooses to love us, chooses to die for us in and as the person of Jesus Christ. And on, all, and on this All Saints Day, I see many family members, and I've seen them throughout the morning, of, of those whose names we'll read off later in the service. We cling to this, that our ultimate fear, called death, has lost its sting. Because God raised Jesus from the dead and promises that all who die in Christ will share in his resurrection. Amen? Make no mistake, what we fear will dictate how we live. What we fear will dictate how we spend our time and our money. What we fear will dictate what we count as priorities and as passions. What we fear shapes our relationships. It shapes our ethics, shapes our values. It shapes the very way we live. So what do you fear? What do you fear? May God's people in this hour and in the days ahead Fear the Lord, who is our hope and our strength. Amen. As we prepare to celebrate All Saints Sunday, 18 members of this congregation have died since our last All Saints. And that's not to say of the others that are part of this congregation in one way or another, connected family members, those we know and love. And as we do this, we remember that Israel in exile faced their fear, as Tony said, with hope. And that we face our fear of those we have lost, the feelings that we have along with that, and death itself with hope. All Saints Sunday, uh, 
was started originally because of martyrs who died for the faith, were killed because of what they believed, and the calendar began to become so full of the dates of remembering those people that eventually the church made it one day each year to remember not just those who died because of, because of their faith, but those who died in their faith, the faithful, the communion of saints, the cloud of witnesses that surrounds us even now. I invite you to join me in reading the litany and after the first section, I'll read the names of those members of this congregation who died in the last year. Let us pray. God of the ages, we praise you for all of your servants of every time and place who in life and death have witnessed to your truth. They are your children. They are your saints. We remember the saints. And so for the members of this congregation who have died in the past year, Kathy, Renee, Bess, Nancy H. Boyd Martin, Jeffrey O. Bramlett, Thomas Lloyd Brown, Nancy Hill Campbell, Bess Lundine Finch, Frank B. Garner, Charles Grenade, Rena Grizel, Carolyn Stacy Martin, Larry James Mitchell, Andrew Z. Musselman, James D. Phillips, Jr., Charles Thomas Reeder, C. David Reif, Ernest W. Wirtz, Richard N. Whittier, Eugenia Creekmore Wilson. For family members, parents, children, brothers and sisters, and extended family, we remember the saints. For wives and husbands, partners, our everyday partners through years of marriage, we remember the saints. For friends, those close to us whose companionship we miss daily, we remember the saints. For those who have died young, unexpectedly, whose lives we cherish, we remember the saints. For men and women in the armed forces who have died in service, we remember the saints. For all who have died from lack of food, of water, of medicine, of safety, we remember the saints. In memorializing these lives, our prayers are prayers of hope in you, O God. Our prayers are prayers of trust that you bring new life to us here and in your promise of resurrection. And our prayers are prayers of thanksgiving for these beautiful people we have known. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses, your children, your saints. Amen.